It's always great when you can start the day celebrating the hero of the night. Monday night football last night. Bears versus Rams. And the hero, no, the hero was not Brian Greasy, who revealed that Nick Foles is completely just burying his head coach in production meetings. We'll play that sound for you here in just a minute. But Johnny Hecker, how about that? The punter for the L.A. Rams last night. Uh, locked up special teams player of the week, I am sure. Should have gone to Joey Sly, but he was literally like a half a foot short of from hitting a 65-yard field goal, the longest field goal in NFL history. But Johnny Hecker last night, five punts. All of them landed inside of the 10-yard line. Uh, Jordan Rodriguez, who used to cover the Panthers for the Charlotte Observer, now works for the LA Times and is the beat reporter for the LA Rams. And she said that she talked to Nick Foles, excuse me, not Nick Foles, Jared Goff. They kind of look the same. Jared Goff after the game yesterday. And that Jared Goff said to her that he has never in his life got up and cheered for a punt. But it said he did it three different times for Johnny Hecker last night, who against a very bad Bears offense, what you can't do is start every single drive inside of your own 10-yard line. So Johnny Hecker... um, what is this thing that Bud Light used to do? Uh, the Real American Heroes or Real Men of Genius? Is that what it was back in the day? This one's for you, Johnny Hecker. You, sir, are a real man of genius. Five punts all landing inside of the 10-yard line last night. Uh, really not a good football game last night. The Bears were fraudulent. We've kind of known this for a while now. And then there's always that turning point, that pivotal pivotal moment for bad teams specifically every single year where things go from bad to worse. Last night sort of gave you those vibes for the Bears, mostly because Nick Foles threw a little bit of gas on the fire. Threw a little bit of gas on the fire. We'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, happy Tuesday. Welcome into the Sam Avalis Show. Big shout out to my sister today, who uh, turns 30 years old. My sister turns 30 years old today. Uh, So happy birthday to Jill, 30 years old, which, you know, that's when it all starts to go downhill, I think, right? Like, not that you still don't have good years ahead of you, but once you hit 30, then you're really, like, then you're an old person. That's when you've officially become old. They're no longer, you're not clinging to any youth. Now you're just a full-grown, boring adult. Which I guess is good and bad, but uh, as I woke up this morning and, and I thought about it, I was like, oh, my sister's birthday today. She's 30 years old. All it could do is just make me feel older because now I am at the point. You, and everybody experiences this all the time. I know this isn't a new thing, but like that was me staring down my own mortality was, wow, now my sister is 30 years old. That means I'm next. <laughs> And it can't go downhill because I can't imagine things getting any worse for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. But happy birthday to my sister, 30 years old today. Most of you don't really care about that, but a, a obligation to say that on the radio here. Uh, we got a fun show coming up. We're going to talk to Kyle Gaskins here in the next segment. To a time in Miami, he is my resident Miami Dolphins friend and fan. So we're going to get his thoughts on Tua. And then coming up a little bit later in the show, going to because with Nick Foles, or excuse me, with Tua, excuse me, with Tua, we are going to be doing this thing where we are constantly comparing him to Joe Burrow to an extent, but more specifically Justin Herbert, because Justin Herbert is the guy that the Dolphins decided to not draft and go with the upside of Tua. 
Tua comes with some risk. Justin Herbert has already proven in like five games with the Chargers that uh, the kid's an absolute stud. He All he does is just put up 300-yard performances, and the Chargers are a pretty good football team because of it. So on that same note, another comparison that we can make right here in our own state is DJ Moore, who up until this weekend had really struggled to get going with the Panthers this season and really been struggling to find any kind of chemistry with Teddy Bridgewater, comparing him to former Alabama wide receiver, now with the Atlanta Falcons, and has turned into a bona fide superstar, Calvin Ridley, who the Panthers, many Panthers fans, wanted Calvin Ridley to be drafted three years ago. Panthers opt over the Alabama guy, and the lineage of placing top-end wide receivers into the NFL that Alabama has, especially over the last few years, when you think about Julio Jones, and you think about Amari Cooper, and then most recently, well, gosh, what was it, Jerry Judy and all the and Henry Ruggs and all those guys this past year? Uh, Calvin Ridley's bust onto the scene. The Panthers said, "No, we're not going to take the Alabama guy, the tried and true wide receiver factory. We're going to think outside the box, and we're going to go with the guy from Maryland." So we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive at Calvin Ridley versus DJ Moore a little bit later in the show today. Uh, it should be interesting. We'll see what we can dig up there. Today's show being brought to you by. Bowden Car Furniture, serving Eastern North Carolina for over 50 years. Bowden Car Furniture is your destination for lazy boy furniture. They have the largest comfort studio in the area. Head down to Bowden Car and just go jump on all the furniture, right? Just like think of it as your play place. Head down to Bowden Car Furniture. They want you to go test out the furniture. They put a lot of effort and work into having the largest comfort studio in the area. And while you're there, you're going to be able to see all sorts of great brands. Lazy Boy, McKinley, Ultra Comfort, they have Capel Rugs, Hammery, and so much more. Quality, comfortable furniture that you will enjoy for years to come. And if you don't want to make the trek down to 211 Highway 70 in Havelock, well, you can just get online. BowdenCarFurniture.com. They've got all their current sales posted up there every single day. And they'll also deliver right to your house. So they make it easy for you. So uh, come on down to Bowden and Car Furniture. They'll make you sh- make sure you find that comfortable piece of furniture at a comfortable price. So the biggest story from last night and um, the aftermath of last night is uh, the the exchange that, that Brian Greasy, who obviously hosts NFL or Monday Night Football for ESPN, the exchange that he revealed that they had with. Nick Foles earlier in the week. I'm sure you've heard this, but if you haven't, they do these production meetings leading up to the games every week where the broadcast crew will go sit down and do interviews with different kinds of players. That way they can have all sorts of little anecdotes to sprinkle in here and there throughout the broadcast. It's not really like an off-the-record thing, but you would think that if a starting quarterback were to say something maybe a little bit negative about his head coach, You wouldn't stick that in your pocket and use it on the broadcast. I can speak to that personally. Not that I've ever had players necessarily say anything negative about a coach to me. But when you're the broadcast crew, there's something about maintaining a relationship. And any reporter will tell you the same thing. Like You want to protect your sources. You want to protect the people that you're covering because you want to have that continued access. Brian Greasy did something last night that probably overstepped a boundary that's going to, going forward, result in people not really being willing to give him very much information. Take a listen to this sound from the Monday Night Football broadcast. This is Brian Greasy talking about his conversation with Nick Foles earlier in the week. 
we were talking to Nick Foles yesterday, and he said, you know, sometimes play calls come in, and I know that I don't have time to execute that play call. And, you know, I'm the one out here getting hit. Sometimes the, the guy calling the plays, Matt Nagy, he doesn't know how much time there is back here. And so that's something that they have to get worked out. Yikes. So, uh, in a nutshell, what he's essentially saying there is, yeah, you know, uh, Matt Nagy, you know, he sits over there on the sideline, and yeah, it's all well and good. He can think he knows what he's doing. He can think he knows the right call and what the right thing to say here. But, look, I'm the one in the backfield, and sometimes he sends in plays, and I'm just ready to change it immediately. That's a bad look for a coach. Um, but to me, it's a bad, it's a worse look for Brian Greasy, too. What I think kind of betrayed the trust, if you will, of Nick Foles, because Nick Foles doesn't tell you that. He doesn't give that nugget to Brian Greasy and say, yeah, you know what, on the nationally televised football game, I want you to get up there and talk about how stupid I think my head coach is. <laughs> Trust me, Nick Foles could accomplish that in several other ways. Nobody needs to help Matt Nagy look like an idiot. I mean, the guy's been coaching there uh, for five years, and if you want to know the guy in Chicago who's a bigger clown than Matt Nagy has proven to be over the last couple of years, it's just simply the general manager, Ryan Pace, who uh, the guy who used a second-round pick on Mitch Trubisky, the guy who brought in Matt Nagy just because he held – Andy Reid's coattails for a couple of years when he was in Kansas City. Matt Nagy, it's, it doesn't need to be stated that Matt Nagy may not necessarily be this genius offensive mind that maybe we touted him to be when he came into Chicago. Dan Orlovsky was on Get Up earlier this morning, and Orlovsky said that whatever coaching gap that you envision there to be, between Matt Nagy and Sean McVay, who was across the sideline from him last night. Whatever coaching gap you think may exist between a guy like McVay and Matt Nagy, he said multiply it by 10. That's how outclassed this guy is in the NFL. But, you know, unless you're a, uh, uh, gosh, just one of these old guys who just, they refuse to ever get rid of, there is no, there is no end in sight right now for Matt Nagy. They seem to be willing to give him the opportunities, and I think it's helped Matt Nagy. While quarterbacks and coaches are oftentimes connected at the hips, and that is what Matt Nagy has going on with Mitch Trubisky, how bad Mitch Trubisky has been has actually been a benefit to Matt Nagy because it's given him more of a leash because, as we've seen Trubisky struggle and the benching, the subsequent benching that led to Nick Foles being the starter, Matt Nagy just went from bad quarterback to really not much better quarterback. Right, it's kind of like pick your poison. Maybe the lesser of two evils, right? If you're taking Nick Foles over Mitch Trubisky, that has helped Matt Nagy in the long run. Not to have the microscope solely on him, because all we want to do is talk about every single day is the quarterback. But Brian Greasy let something slip last night that has firmly put the spotlight back on Matt Nagy. There's a great uh, follow on Twitter, if you guys use Twitter. Um, Shooter McGavin has a Twitter account. Shooter McGavin, the famous villain from Happy Gilmore. That account last night tweeted out a video imagining what it sounds like when Matt Nagy is trying to draw up a play call. And it is a scene from the movie Waterboy. Coach Klein, right, played by Henry Winkler, invites Adam Sandler, the Waterboy's character, into... The locker room. Bobby Boucher standing there next to Coach Klein. And Coach Klein is trying to draw up a play and show Bobby exactly what they're going to do. So I pulled the clip here. (laughs) And I want you to close your eyes and imagine that this is what Nick Foles hears when Matt Nagy is trying to draw up a play. Come on. 
Come here. Come here. Come on. Come on, everybody. All right, this is it. Okay. This is the play. This is the play. This is the play. Okay. The quarterback. Two receivers lined up to the left, one to the right. There's a flanker lined up to the left behind the quarterback. Oh, okay. Now, he gives the ball. No, he doesn't. He doesn't get the ball. The receiver goes all the way over there to the left. Now, once the quarterback has the ball, he fakes to the left. No. He fakes to the right. He doesn't fake. He thinks about faking. He pretends to fake. I don't know where I am. I can't breathe. There is a legitimate concern that maybe Matt Nagy uh, doesn't actually really know what he's doing. That is a that is a real concern because you know what? If I had heard this from, I don't know, David Montgomery or like Allen Robinson who was disgruntled earlier in the year because he wasn't getting enough action. If Allen Robinson, the, I don't know, borderline diva wide receiver comes out and calls out his coach for not really knowing what he's doing, wouldn't really bat an eye because Allen Robinson – is not one of those guys who we look at with any sort of expectation to be, you know, perfect by the book, say the right things, politician of a football player. But Nick Foles is an altar boy, right? Like Nick Foles is sitting there, sitting front row in the choir, singing his pipes out. Nick Foles isn't the kind of guy who is a locker room cancer, right? Like Nick Foles is a goody two shoes. If Nick Foles is the guy that's saying something about Matt Nagy, maybe not really having a total grasp of what this team needs from day to day, from time to time, uh, then that's a really bad look. That is a damning look for Matt Nagy. So you know what? Like As much as I do think Brian Greasy was in the wrong to reveal this, Bears fans, this is good for you. This is great for the Chicago Bears to finally have somebody saying, hey, maybe we need to quit blaming Trubisky, and maybe we need to quit blaming Nick Foles, and maybe we just understand that, you know what, maybe this coach is just an idiot. Like Maybe Matt Nagy just doesn't have it all together. Maybe Matt Nagy isn't necessarily this offensive genius that we have perhaps given him some credit for. I've seen, and I don't know how much I agree or disagree with this, but I understand what the Nick Foles experience is like. We're going to have Kyle Gaskins joining us here in a couple of minutes. The Nick Foles experience isn't so much like the Ryan Fitzpatrick experience, but there are some similarities where you don't necessarily trust Fitzpatrick in perpetuity. Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know you're going to get like an, a shot of adrenaline in the arm of your team and he's going to come out he's got a couple big games and then he's going to kind of taper off and then he's really going to frustrate you and then you're going to be ready to make a change Nick Foles is sort of like that right like ever since he won the Super Bowl the joke around Nick Foles is you know don't have him be your starter don't have him be your main guy going into a season have him be the guy that in week 10 he comes in and he leads you to the promised land Nick Foles, outside of one season, right, all the way back in 2012, 2013, whatever it was, when he had that breakout season in Philadelphia where he threw for something absurd, like 29 touchdowns and two interceptions that year. Outside of that, Nick Foles has never put together a complete season. So now where we are today after that performance last night is we have a lot of Bears fans that are calling for the benching of Nick Foles and bringing back Mitch Trubisky. 
I don't really know if that's uh, a move that's going to be advantageous one way or the other. I think at the end of the day, it's more of a lateral move. I say that from my perspective as somebody who's never really believed in Mitch Trubisky as a quarterback. Greg McElroy, earlier this morning, I've got a quote here, um, was on a show and he said, the guy that gives them the best chance to win is Mitch Trubisky because at least he gives you a chance offensively because of his legs. He can create, he can run around. Yeah, he might throw a couple picks, but you know what? So be it. At least we are getting looks. He might throw a couple picks, but you know what? So be it. At least we are getting looks. Well, number one, that sounds like a dead-on comparison to my boy Jameis Winston. And I heard a very slight rumor earlier that the Cowboys are interested in maybe making a move for Ryan Fitzpatrick, while I still maintain that they should make a move for Jameis Winston. But there is something to that. Nick Foles is sitting here talking about he does he knows plays that Matt Nagy calls aren't going to work because he knows he's not going to have enough time after the snap. Do you know why? It's because he can't move. He has those concrete legs. He's statuesque. So if you're dealing with the bad offensive line, the way that Chicago is, maybe the guy who isn't even just immobile. Like, what is even further immobile than the word immobile? That is what Nick Foles is. Like, Peyton Manning would beat him in a foot race. Tom Brady would beat him in a foot race. He's a giraffe. You don't want a giraffe running around because he's just going to get tripped up over his own feet. Mitch Trubisky may offer a bit of upside in this offense particularly because then you can start doing all sorts of creative things where you're rolling them out, you're moving the pocket. You can't do that with Nick Foles. So Nick Foles, yes, at the same time is telling on himself a little bit. If I was Chicago. And so what? They're 4 and 2 now, I believe. They were fraudulent 4 and 1. I would be willing to give Nick Foles another couple of weeks to see if you know, LA's a good team. The Rams are a good team that they lost to last night. But the score, 24-10, it didn't even ever feel that close. I mean, it's just a complete inept offensive performance. They got a late touchdown that really didn't mean anything. Mitch Trubisky may actually give you some upside. And there are some quarterbacks out there that you just have to live with the mistakes. The problem is, the difference between Jameis and Mitch Trubisky is the upside for Jameis is 5,000 yards, 30 touchdowns. It also comes with 30 picks. The upside for Mitch Trubisky is just like 3,200 yards. Last year, they didn't even ask him to run the ball much last year. He didn't even have 200 total yards rushing for the season last year. Maybe Mitch Trubisky, maybe the whole idea here is they were trying to do this round, or excuse me, square peg round hole thing where, hey, maybe he needs to be a mobile quarterback. And gosh, if you learned anything so far this year, it's that the mobile quarterback is coming more consistently. And it doesn't, everybody doesn't have to be Lamar Jackson. You just have to be like Patrick Mahomes, where if the play is there, it's like, yeah, take off and scamper for 15 yards. Nick Foles is never going to give you that. Mitch Trubisky could give you that. And in the new age kind of offense that Chicago is trying to run, perhaps the guy with a little bit more mobility is the better option. So uh, going to keep an eye on Chicago and see what they do with that quarterback position going forward. But uh, in the interim, it does seem like people have finally – Turn their attention. Here you go. I'll get nerdy with you for a second. If you if you ever watched the Lord of the Rings movies, right? You know uh, the Eye of Sauron. Yeah, I'm getting real nerdy here on a Tuesday afternoon. The Eye of Sauron, the big tower that has the eyeball, the fiery eyeball. The bad guy in Lord of the Rings. You remember when, when he sets his eyes on you? That's when you're really in trouble. When that eye finds you, you're in trouble. That eye has just finally found Matt Nagy, 
And Matt Nagy is certainly, I believe, in a little bit of trouble. All right, fun show coming up. Kyle Gaskins going to join me here in the very next segment. We're going to get to some Panthers talk a little bit later in the afternoon. Going to mix in some fantasy football waiver wire stuff at some point today as well. Stick around. You're listening to the Sam Avila Show right here on 252 ESPN Radio. Welcome back to the Sam Avila Show. He's said to be joined here in just a moment by Kyle Gaskins. Kyle's a Miami Dolphins fan, and the, one of the bigger storylines in the NFL this week is, of course, I mean, we saw him in the last game for the Dolphins, but the real debut of Tua. Tua time. I'm not even going to try to say his last name. Tago Viloa. Tago Viloa. Viola. I'm not really even sure. So we're just going to call him simply Tua on this show going forward. So we're going to do that here in just a second. This segment being brought to you by Taqueria San Luis. It is Tuesday, which means it is Taco Tuesday. Tacos, just $1.25 all day long at Taqueria San Luis. So call ahead. Call ahead. That's the easiest way to do it. That's the best way to do it. Their phone number, 252-635-0300. 252-635-0300. Go out there and just get you a mess load of tacos. Tell them you heard them on the radio. The best, like most authentic tacos. Okay, so what, tomorrow is the Steel-Based Steel Taco Day for the World Series stuff? By the way, we got Game 6 coming up tonight. That should be a lot of fun. Don't don't waste your time going to Taco Bell and getting one of those doo-doo tacos, right? That, like, gray D meat that they put inside of those things. No, 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 no. Head out to Taqueria San Luis and get yourself some real, authentic Mexican tacos. Just $1.25. And, hey, while you're there, you can check out all their other great menu items as well. That's Taqueria San Luis, 1706 Highway 70 in New Bern. It's like across the street from all that that row of like a million car dealerships in a row out there. It's on the other side. So head out there today. Tell them who sent you. So very happy to now be welcoming in the man himself, Kyle Gaskins, joining the Sam Avila Show. Kyle, what's happening, buddy? Uh, Nothing much, Sam. How are you? I am doing well. I brought you on because you are a... Well, I don't want to say you're a miserable Miami Dolphins fan because things are looking a little bit better right now. You guys are right there in contention for a playoff berth in the AFC East. Like You could have an AFC East title potentially this year. I know you got your eyes on the Buffalo Bills, but before we get to maybe the positivity in your life, um, I want to go back to the negativity and take you to a very dark place that you were in as a human being just a couple of weeks ago. Have you lost all right to ever make a 28-3 to joke to an Atlanta Falcons fan ever after your Atlanta Braves got so close once again but choked up a 3-1 to lead to the L.A. Dodgers? Man, you thought, you thought you had the world all in front of you right there on a silver platter. Here comes the World Series. And then I guess it's just typical Atlanta fashion. I guess it just it's something in the water down there. Uh, your season's over right before your eyes. See, see, that's you, you hit the nail on the head at the end. It wasn't the Braves' fault. They couldn't handle. I mean, <laughs> what the Falcons did when they blew a twenty-eight to three lead. I, I mean, it is one of the seven wonders of the world how a NFL team in a Super Bowl could possibly blow a twenty-five point lead at the half. And when you do something so bizarre and so just once in a generate, like once in a millennium, 
thing to happen, you're going to have some side effects, some aftershocks. And that's the Atlanta blowing a 3-1 lead. That is uh, the Falcons continuing to blow 98% win probability leads. Uh, that also, unfortunately for Georgia Tech, that spews to them getting beat by 130 to Clemson. <laughs> uh, that also travels down to Athens, so Georgia football can never win a big game no matter how hard they try. So it's back, back to what you mentioned. It's the Falcons' fault, and that's where I'm kind of like stopping it right there. It's it's the Atlanta Falcons' fault for ruining sports for the entire state of Georgia. So. <laughs> That's that's kind of where I'm at on that. As far as the Braves blowing a 3-1 lead, what I do take some solace in is that they lost to a better team. It wasn't like they had a bad team on the ropes and couldn't put them away. They lost to the best team in baseball that was better than they were this year. And next year, if the Braves can add a little bit of uh, some starting pitching, a little more starting pitching, get Soroka back, maybe get a big free agent, then I think they can really compete with the Dodgers. As long as they do some anti-curse rituals that somehow expunge the Atlanta Falcons stench from the Atlanta Braves name. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I feel bad. I I think you're clearly still in the same spot. We're not at this point where we're ready to blow this thing up yet. And, And you feel like you're just, you know, knocking on heaven's door year after year. How much more slack are you going to give to these guys before you really start raising an eyebrow and, and feel like this team needs to make some major changes? I mean, because you feel like you lost to the Dodgers, and it almost feel like the Braves right now are like Dodgers light, where the Dodgers for, what, seven, eight years it seemed like, okay, this is the year, this is the year, this is the year, and then they finally broke through. I mean, so you're just full on board of just stay the course, we've got the right pieces, it's just a matter of the chips falling our way. Absolutely. And the reason why I'm, I'm like that was a couple months ago when it was in the middle of the very short MLB season, when the Braves lost Mike Soroka, their ace, Cy Young contender, when he goes down, you had Cole Hamels, you also got in free, or you got in free agency. You had Cole Hamels also go down after throwing three innings against the Orioles, and that was his only appearance all season. You signed King Felix Hernandez. He opted out before the season began. Wow, I forgot that they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Fultonevich was an absolute bust this season. Sean Newcomb couldn't get command and couldn't start. So out of the opening day's starting rotation that we thought the Braves were going to be about where they were, the second best team in the National League, you only had one pitcher, and that was Max Free from that rotation initially. And to see a young Ian Anderson get called up and kind of solidify himself as a part of this rotation moving forward, once you get the Sorokas back, I mean, it, and you make a couple free agent moves, obviously you won't keep Felix Hernandez or Cole Hamels, but you'll make some free agent moves. And you're looking at a really, really good bull, or really good starting pitching rotation to complement a great bullpen. So I think if the Braves can stay the course, they'll be able to compete with the Dodgers. But also the thing that's not good for Atlanta is that the Dodgers are also built to win and continue winning for many years to come with their young players. So I think it's going to be a Dodgers-Braves battle yearly for the NLCS coming in the next couple of years. I think it's going to, those are the two best teams. I think they've separated themselves from the rest of the national league. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. I know. I remember having you on like within a, a week or two of the start of the season this year. 
And that was immediately what we identified as an issue for the Braves was, look, you know what? This bullpen and this pitching is just going to end up being the downfall for this team. They're going to have to solely rely on offensive firepower. And somehow the pitching just continued to get worse and worse and worse as the season went on. So I think they'll be fine going forward. I think you're right. Uh, Real quick before we get to some football we got game six coming up tonight. Do you like the Dodgers' chances to close it out? I think I saw Blake Snell's going to be out there for the Rays. And then uh, I think he's a rookie. That Gonsolin guy for the Dodgers is also going to be pitching tonight. I, In my heart, I believe that the Dodgers are going to close it out tonight. As much as I like Blake Snell, I just think the Dodgers are going to have their timely hitting because like they've done in the Braves series, they've continued in the World Series – when they get two outs, they all of a sudden become the monsters. I mean, it's just, you are you can get one and two out easily, but they get that third out against the Dodgers. It's just you're going to have to cook up a witchcraft spell or something. <laughs> and the way they just continue to work counts, get pitch pitch counts up, battle in the count, wait for their pitch, and the minute you make a mistake, they just ambush it. I just think there'll be maybe three or four mistakes from Rays pitching tonight, and I think the Dodgers will hit three or four home runs on it. So. I would like to see a game seven, but I think we're gonna I think we're gonna end this tonight. I think the Dodgers win in six. Dodgers looking to win their first title since nineteen eighty eight. neither Kyle or myself were even born the last time the LA Dodgers won a World Series. So game six coming up tonight. We'll have it for you on the radio right here. Kyle Gaskins joining me here on the Sam Avila show. Kyle, let's get to your beloved Miami Dolphins. A bit of a surprising start to the season and anything you want to sprinkle in Dolphins related as a whole, feel free to do so. But you guys are kind of the talk of the town this week in the NFL because everybody is eagerly anticipating the start of Tua Tagovailoa, or however in the world you say his last name. It's Tua time in Miami. Take me back to last week when you officially got the news that it was going to be Tua going forward. Were you surprised? Are you ready for this? Are you are you like nervously ready for this? I am. I was surprised when they initially said it, and I am nervously awaiting it. I'm happy. I'm ecstatic for the first time in my life. The Dolphins are going to – well, I wouldn't say my life. For the first time since I could remember, the Dolphins are going to have a superstar at quarterback for them. And, I mean, it, the, the, it boils down to this weekend, Sunday NFL countdown. The Dolphins didn't play this week, and they had two segments on Sunday NFL countdown talking about their future and two the Dolphins, for the longest time, could be 12-0, and 0, beating teams 100-0, to 0, and they won't <laughs> mention them whatsoever. Just absolute blip on the radar. No, oh, yeah, Dolphins won. Who cares? So now they're relevant, which is huge, first off, that people actually know about the Dolphins and are actually paying attention to them. I was a little bit surprised when they went with Tua, given the team's been playing well. But also, with Fitzpatrick, you kind of saw it in – we know how Fitzpatrick is. You go from Fitz magic to Fitz tragic very quickly. So you always want to kind of have a good taste in your mouth when you when you move on from Fitzpatrick. You don't want to have that four interception game against a team like the Jets that you could have easily won and you end up dropping. So to make this move now with the bye week, I completely understand it. Give to an extra week of preparation as a starter, get more reps with the first team. And I, I like it. I agree with it. I'm ready to roll with it. The only thing that worries me is the first game against Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, and the big, bad L.A. Rams defense. But NFL, every team has superstars, and you can't baby them. So I'm, I'm anxious to see the uh, start of two-a-time in Miami. 
Yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to that because you said you have a superstar at quarterback now, and I think there's more of a you know I, I think you're I think you're pl- uh, putting that label on Tua awfully quickly to go ahead and say he's a superstar. But let's go back to Fitzmagic because I know you love Ryan Fitzpatrick. Every, there's not a single person on the face of the planet who doesn't love Ryan Fitzpatrick, and he's been so good for Miami. Um, you you mentioned it's kind of an up and down thing, and you're probably right. Like I think he's strung together two or three good games now, so it's time for it all to crumble down around him but did you feel bad for him at least I saw some people sort of tongue-in-cheek saying that you know oh Ryan Fitzpatrick should do the better veteran thing and you know say like I'm I'm passing the torch on to Tua it's his time now Fitzpatrick was kind of emotional talking to the media last week thinking that this was sort of the first time that he felt like this was his team and and right when he feels like he has everything going for him he gets it snatched away from him did you feel bad for Ryan Fitzpatrick I did, and like, and everyone knows that Ryan Fitzpatrick knew it going into the season that at some point he was going to have to pass on the reins to Tua. He just didn't think it would be at that moment. So I do feel bad for him. And Ryan, and, and to to go off some people being critical of the way he handled it, Fitzpatrick has done nothing but help Tua. I mean, it has been incredible to see shots at the sidelines, and your starting quarterback is teaching your backup during a game, not necessarily trying to figure out himself but to show the young quarterback what he sees what he missed what the defense was giving him so he has been an absolute perfect role model and the thing about Fitzpatrick and what everybody likes about him is he keeps it real there's no fakeness there's that you you get what you get with Fitzpatrick you get the unbuttoned uh cool little tie-dye shirts with the chest hair poking out with the chains on the press conference when you're doing good (laughs) and you get the Harvard veteran that or answers the tough questions when you lose. So I, I, I actually enjoyed, well not enjoyed, but I actually admired his realness in being upset about it. And I think, you know, I don't want the Dolphins to get rid of Fitzpatrick because I think having him with Tua is very good. But if a team in the NFC East wants to offer the Dolphins a second round pick or more for a year of Fitzpatrick team that has a star as their logo, I mean, I don't know how you say no to that if you're Miami, but I Fitzpatrick was the perfect year-and-a-half quarterback. He was the perfect guy to transition from the tank to being respectable again or on the verge of being respectable again. So he made Dolphins football fun the last two years when it's really been hard to make it fun. So I, <laughs> I'll, always, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for old Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yeah, well, now at least you have some hope here. At the very least, what you have right now is hope for Tua so we don't really have much of a sample size he has completed 100% of his passes in the NFL he's two for two how about that your incoming superstar first all time yeah first all time (laughs) exactly the guy the guy is batting 1000 right now uh first things first because I laughed at this I snorted and just thought it was hysterical when they showed the picture of him going out and sitting in the middle of the field after his first start he facetimed his parents Kyle you I mean I I know that you have blinders on when you're watching this guy, Tua. Are you here for cheesy quarterback, or do you want somebody with a little bit more of an edge? Because it seems like Tua's getting ready to bring you cheesy quarterback. If he brings me cheesy quarterback and wins football games, man, he can literally get a portrait of himself sitting out at midfield (laughs) after every game. He can get a person to come and sit down and paint the picture. Uh, I'm I'm not a cheesy guy. As much as people might think I am, so I'm not, you know, that's his thing. If he wanted to FaceTime his parents, who I assume were in Hawaii, not being able to be there, 
So for them to share that moment with his parents, and I know his parents have been very, very important on his journey to where he is now. So I'm not going to really fault him for that, but no, I could, I could definitely make maybe a wise crack about if it wasn't Tua, if it was another team starting quarterback <laughs> right, did that. I, mean, I, I could probably hell, make it. Yeah. <laughs> I can, I can make a funny comment or two, but you know, it's I'm not, I'm not going to hammer the guy for trying to spend a moment with his parents after a big moment like that. I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> right, right. So the biggest threat to your comfort level with Tua. To this point, I mean, maybe there's something in his game. Maybe you're worried about, you know, the risk of re-injury. This is a guy who had, what, ankle issues and foot issues, and then most notably the hip injury last year that he's still, I guess, I mean, I guess he's recovered from it. I'm assuming that he would be completely 100% if they're throwing him out there. But the guy, the person, or the idea and the thought that's got to be the biggest threat to your confidence in Tua has to be Justin Herbert. At this point, right? Like, how much has Justin Herbert's play so far this year? The guy's not just been, like, the best rookie. He's been a top-five quarterback in the NFL this year, whether people want to admit it or not. When you watch him play, it has to sort of be making you nervous that, like, oh, gosh, I hope I hope our guy can at least do that. Because he seems to have raised the expectations for what Tua needs to be able to come in and do immediately. That That's the one thing I'm interested I'm not necessarily worried about it because – uh, it's a rookie quarterback. The Dolphins are still in not a tank mode, but they still have a lot of assets. So it's not really – he doesn't have to go out there and go 7-3 and three this year or else oh my God, the sky is falling. But it has been interesting to watch Justin Herbert, and I don't mean to shift the narrative or anything, but I'm going to be anxious to see how other people in national media handle Tua and what their expectations of Tua are. Because when you're watching Justin Herbert do that, what what do they think Tua is going to do in their first game? Since most people had Tua above Herbert, so is Tua going to need to go out and throw four touchdowns, no interceptions in game one, or will he be labeled as a bust? So that's kind of my interesting with Herbert and Burrow playing so well. It does add a little bit of wrinkle to it. I'm not necessarily too concerned over that as a rookie. You know, at the end of maybe next year, if Herbert's still playing at an absurdly high level and it's better than Tua is, you know, then you might have to scratch your head a little bit. But until you cross that bridge, I wouldn't really worry about that if you're a Dolphins fan or myself. But it, it has been interesting to watch Herbert play. And for someone like me that thought Tua was better than Herbert, to see Herbert do those things makes me excited and also nervous. To see exactly what Tua can do. How big of a leash are you willing to give Tua? I mean, is there is there any scenario where Tua goes out and doesn't play up to your expectations or Brian, Brian Flores's expectations, where you could legitimately call, have yourself calling for Ryan Fitzpatrick to come back in? Because because the reason I have found this transition so interesting is because of how well the Dolphins have played this year. I mean, you guys are 3-3, three and three, right at 500, coming out of the bye week. Going to have a tough matchup against the Rams, but they're going to be on a bit of a short week, so that always plays to your advantage a little bit. But you even just look ahead at the Dolphins' schedule over the next few weeks. I think you guys get the Jets again coming up soon. Uh, there'll be a matchup against the Cincinnati Bengals, where it's going to be really exciting to watch Burrow versus Tua, the other uh, famous rookie quarterback this season. You guys have a legitimate opportunity to make a playoff push here. If it seems like Tua is the guy that's holding the Dolphins back from making a playoff run, do you want to see a transition back to Fitzpatrick? Or are you willing to just eat a year of not going to the playoffs again for the 
um, growth and maturation of your new quarterback? I would eat a year without the playoffs. Wow. And I think I think when you put Tua in, unless he put up puts up Cam Newton numbers the last two weeks, unless he's doing nine of 15, 98 yards, three interceptions, I think you roll with the punches and get him acclimated. He hasn't played football in about a year now. So it's not he's not going to go out there and look like Joe Montana. At least, you know, if if he does, God bless the hype train I will be driving. <laughs> but there's going to be some bumps and bruises. He's not going to go out there and play perfectly. So I'm willing to eat a year and, you know, if the Dolphins do finish dismally down the stretch, they're going to have two top 10 picks because the best thing about the Dolphins this year is you have the Houston Texans actively tanking <laughs> for you. Yes, yes. Thank you, for Bill O'Brien. You. Yes. So if the Dolphins put in Tua and it just doesn't work out this season and Tua's just not playing well, or if he's playing well and the Dolphins don't win, you have the Texans' first and second round picks, you have your first and second round picks, and you have the Saints' second round pick. So all of a sudden here, you can still build build a great team around Tua, or, God forbid, if something happens to him, you could get another quarterback. But... I don't really think that's going to happen uh, at all, given Tua's reputation and the uh, investment they made in Tua. But if he goes out there and plays great, that's awesome. But if he goes out there and the team doesn't win, you'll have better draft picks for next year, and you'll have a lot more of a solid team to put around going into next September. Yeah, uh, the NFL trade deadline uh, early next week. I think November 3rd is the date of the trade deadline. So we'll see if the Dolphins are active here um, in one way or the other, whether they, whether they want to move uh, Fitzpatrick. I don't know if they've got any expiring contracts that they might be able to get out from underneath uh, and, and position themselves going forward. All right, so all eyes on Tua there. Kyle, before we let you go, man, and two tough matchups coming up. we got the Rams and then you got the Cardinals the following week. So – just throw him right in the fire here. Throw Tua right into the fire. Look, I can't imagine a worse way to start your NFL career. Aaron Donald followed by Chandler Jones, like two of the most fearsome defenders in football right now. Tua's got his work cut out for him. Uh, I know you've been so impressed with what Brian Flores and this staff has done in just two short years, the way they have just absolutely turned this team around, and now they are finally, for the first time since I can remember, trending upwards in a direction that – I'm not going to say dynastical, but it seems like you're getting to a place where you're you're going to be good for a while in Miami. Any other final thoughts just on the team as a whole? The way they played down the stretch last year, much to the chagrin of myself, because I wanted them to go 1-15 and get the best draft pick available. But the way they were able to turn it around and just put together wins down the stretch. I mean, last year they won against Philadelphia at Indianapolis – and at New England. And that was from a team who in the week one and two, after week two, you had national media members calling for them to get disciplined, uh, all of their draft picks gone, almost wanting criminal action against how bad the Dolphins were. <laughs> so for in about a year and about 13-month period to go from that to all of a sudden you're trending upward to a playoff is, I mean, it's been absolutely remarkable what Flores has done. And you know, he kind of comes, he comes from New England. He was a lifer under Belichick from, I think, 04 to 2018. So you're going to pick up a couple Belichick nuances and that might be making decisions that some people might scratch their head on. But if anything, Flores has commanded the respect of the team and at least the respect of the fan base saying, look, 
I know what I'm doing. Trust me. So I'm willing to give Flores a very long leash for him to do what he can because if he can keep building what Miami's already been built on, plus adding in another year of draft picks and free agency moves, and given the dynamic of the AFC East with one team being a, a, a glorified college team and the other trending down, I mean, it's a it's a bright time to be a Dolphins fan for the first time in, I mean, since at least 2016, and that was wasn't that bright of a time. No, yeah, you're giving 2016 too much credit. Kyle Gaskins, um, happy Dolphins fan, sad Braves fan. Kyle, before I let you go here, one last thing. Tiger Woods, dude, just laid a goose egg at the Zozo tournament this weekend. We're like two, what, two and a half weeks away from the Masters getting underway, a tradition seriously unlike any other this year where the Masters are going to be in the middle of November. Tiger going into the Masters this year, like just no hype at all, right? He and Phil both. Phil, I think, what, Phil's not even on the PGA Tour anymore. He's out here playing in his senior open or whatever they call it. Uh, who are the young names that we need to look for for the Masters this year? Because it seems like the days of Tiger and Phil, at least for this year, have kind of faded away. Well, I think with late Tiger, I think with Tiger, you're not going to see him play well in these smaller tournaments. He's using those mainly as tune-ups for the big tournaments. Now, piggybacking off that, with the Masters being played in November, it's going to be a completely different course than the players are used to playing it in the spring. It's going to be absurdly longer than it's played ever. So for older guys like Tiger and Phil and any other shorter hitters, it's, you know, thanks for coming out, get a, get a pimento cheese sandwich at the turn, enjoy your time here. But with any Masters coming up, and I think the guy to watch is going to be Bryson DeChambeau, basically because he is an absolute freak of nature. He put up on his social media this past weekend that he carried a golf ball 400 yards, which is just – Are you serious? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it is absolute. I mean, I, I don't even begin to – I can't even get a synonym – or a, uh, I can't even get a word to describe how absurd that is. So I would say DeChambeau just because he's going to be incredible to watch. Anytime Rory McIlroy is playing in a Masters going for his career Grand Slam, he's going to be much-watched television. And pretty much anybody that can draw the golf ball and still hit it with some distance, I think is going to have a good shot of competing toward the end of the Masters. Now you got to go with Charlie Hoffman as your first-round leader with the green glove. He always always emerges on the first day of the Masters, like four under par out of nowhere, so – Aside from Charlie Hoffman day one, I think it's going to be McElroy, DeChambeau, Rom. If Dustin Johnson can recover from COVID, I, I think I think, and also don't forget about our guy Brooks Kepka. So I think long ball hitters are going to be the story at Augusta this year. Coming up in just a couple of weeks, I think it's um, November. 12th, I believe, is the Thursday that it'll be get going. So we'll certainly be talking some Masters as it gets a little bit closer. Kyle Gaskins, good luck with Tua this weekend, man. I'm praying that uh, I'm praying that Monday we're not sitting here talking about because the guy looks small out there on the football field. I'm just going to say it. He looks little, and little quarterbacks can play well. We saw two really good little quarterbacks on Sunday night between the Cardinals and the Seahawks. But Tua looks small, man. I'm, I'm rooting for you guys, but. You know, there's a there's a small sadistic part of me that wants you to live for the rest of your life with regrets that you took Tua over Justin Herbert. Ugh, I'm hoping that you are very wrong on that front. <laughs> and my my thing that's going to get me through this week is that if Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson can play in Aaron Donald's division without dying, I think Tua can handle one game. <laughs> 
that's kind of my hope. Yeah, keep on uh, keep on hoping. We'll see Dolphins Rams coming up this weekend. Kyle Gaskin, sir, you've been great. I look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks for having me on, Sam. So you can catch Tua in action coming up this weekend. His first start comes against that uh, the most terrifying defender in the NFL, Aaron Donald. That's a, a fun place to start if you're Tua. I think everybody's cheering for him. I am always for more good quarterbacks coming into the league because there's just nothing worse than watching a football game that features a bad quarterback. And I mean, did you watch the Bears last night? The Bears have two bad quarterbacks, Nick Foles and Mitch Trubisky. So I think pretty much everybody's rooting for Tua. It should be a uh, a fun and sweet story, to say the least, right? Like, we're always rooting for the redemption. We're always rooting for the underdog. So, yep, eyes on Tua this weekend. 3-3 three and three Dolphins going to be the focal point of the NFL heading into whatever this is. This week eight we're heading into now? Nothing goes by faster than football season. We're already going into week eight. We're like at the halfway point. Nothing goes faster than football season. All right, more of the Sam Avil show coming up. Welcome back into the Sam Avalis show. I come to you with a heavy heart here in the five o'clock hour. Because as if 2020 could not get any worse. NC State announced earlier today that the live mascot, Tuffy 2, the second rendition of Tuffy, the live wolf mascot. It's more like a dog, one of those like dog-wolf hybrids. Tuffy 2 has passed away, unfortunately. NC State uh, put a statement out earlier today that says, In memory of Tuffy 2, we are deeply saddened to hear of the passing of Tuffy 2, He meant so much to so many people within the NC State community. Our thoughts go out to the Downey family, the family who owned him and took care of him. Our thoughts go out to the Downey family during this difficult time. So RIP to a legend, Tuffy 2. Losing dogs is the absolute worst thing ever. And when it comes to, like, I'm a huge fan of live mascots. Now, I understand that there is some uh, ethical discussions that be, that can be had surrounding live mascots i think most notably uh would be mike the tiger right the lsu mascot which i know a lot of people who are like anti-zoo and stuff are like man you can't keep that tiger in a cage eh, i mean i'm not here to have those discussions all i'm here to say is that live mascots are the best okay if you have a live mascot who's it is it colorado um who runs on the field with a buffalo at the start of every single game you know texas has uh what bevo the longhorn I think the most notable or the most uh, notorious and famous live mascot is probably it's probably Ugga. It might be Bevo, but it's probably Ugga, the bulldog at Georgia. I am personally partial to the War Eagle at Auburn. I always thought that was uh, such a cool thing to do that little ritual every single game. I know Carolina fans, you love Ramses, all right, but I am here to say that. In the in the who is the best live mascot debate, if you look at all the colleges that have a live mascot, it's a tie between anybody who has a dog because dogs are the absolute best. Ram- the Ramsey thing is cool. Don't get me wrong, UNC fans, but dogs are the greatest thing that exists on the planet. 
So anybody who has a dog mascot, I know State does the dog mascot. Um, what Tennessee? Tennessee does Smokey the dog. What is it, like a little basset hound? Um, Georgia with Uga. I can't think. I'm sure there's some other folks that have. Like I would imagine Wofford has like a little terrier <laughs> that they that they run onto the field because everybody's real intimidated by the terriers. I mean, does Wofford have a football team? That's pro- I don't I don't know if they do or not. I know they have a football stadium. That's where. Um, isn't that where the Panthers practice or like did summer camp? I think it is. Anyways, uh, moral of the story here is that uh, go home and give your dog a hug tonight because NC State lost their mascot today. Losing a dog is sad, but it always is exciting to have a puppy, right? Like having a puppy is like the greatest thing ever. So I'm very excited. I hope NC State does not take too long to choose a toughy number three. Tuffy number three. They need to get two of them. Like, they need to get Mr. and Mrs. Wolf, right? Like, they need Tuffy and Lady Tuffy. I actually think Tuffy, too, was a female. Anyways, um, got some Panther stuff we're going to get to coming up in the next segment. We had some pretty big news out of Panthers camps today. Uh, I, I want to, I hope, I'm hoping that he did this on purpose and tried to make a scene about it. <laughs> but the report early, this was from uh, Nick Carboni, who works for the Charlotte Observer. The report was that Christian McCaffrey, Christian McCaffrey, who has not played since week two, walked out to practice today in the red penny, the dreaded red penny, which means I'm injured. I'm not really participating. Nobody touched me. He had the red penny on the injury designated penny and then decided to change into dramatically in front of all the media there because it was an open session at practice today changes into a normal practice jersey and Christian McCaffrey was able to get a full practice in today for the Carolina Panthers Matt Rule said he looked good but he wants to monitor him and see how he responds to a full practice after again not having played since week two dealing with that ankle sprain so something to keep an eye on as the week goes on a short week for Christian McCaffrey to get prepared if he's going to see the field because the Panthers will be playing on Thursday night football this week Thursday night football this week they'll be getting an opportunity to take on the Atlanta Falcons who unbelievably this weekend found another Unbelievable! Only the Falcons can do it. Way to lose that football game to the Detroit Lions when Todd Gurley just needed to take a knee. Just needed to take a knee, but because he's in a Falcons jersey now, as he gets to the goal line, and if he does not score, the clock will run off and Atlanta will win the game. Whatever cruel, sick thing that has been going on in Atlanta over the last couple of years just turned all its negative energy into a giant magnet in the end zone and sucked Todd Gurley into the end zone, an unnecessary touchdown that ultimately led to their demise as Matt Stafford and them boys trotted out on the field and went down and ended up winning that game in regulation. So Panthers, Falcons, Thursday night football, you can bet – your butt that we will be talking a lot of that uh, going forward for the rest of the week. But I want to stay in Charlotte for just a minute with another one of our professional sports teams out there. And I use the word professional very loosely when I am referencing the Charlotte Hornets. So there's still a lot of stuff up in the air about the NBA and what the next NBA season's going to look like. Uh, I was home for lunch today, and I was listening to Brian Windhorst, who was on Sports Center, and he was talking about how there's constant negotiations. There's a lot of people pushing for the NBA to get up and running 
almost immediately, almost as soon as possible. I believe right now the date for the NBA draft, which seems like that is not going to be delayed. While everything else is still being negotiated, while they're still trying to figure out how many games, when is the season going to start, it sounds like LeBron James is not here for a quick resumption of NBA basketball. It sounds like LeBron James is like, hey, look, you know, I just finished playing. I understand that there's a lot of NBA players who haven't played since March. There's even more who haven't played since the beginning of September when all of those original bubble teams who didn't qualify for the playoffs were sent home. But LeBron James is like, look, man, I've played a ton of basketball over the last three months. I need a little bit of a break. But the NBA draft seems like it's going to go on as scheduled. And, uh, March, or excuse me, November 18th. Let me make sure I have that right. It seems like it's always a Tuesday or a Thursday night that they do this. Um, the 18th right now would be a Wednesday. So, of course, right between the two days that I said it could potentially be on. So, we're a couple weeks away from the NBA draft. And the NBA draft is interesting this year and has a little bit um, more attention on it from our perspective because the Charlotte Hornets have an opportunity to get a guy who could ultimately make them relevant for years to come. There's a lot of big names in this draft. Uh, what, the little ball kid, LaMelo? Is this LaMelo or is this LiAngelo? I think this is LaMelo Ball. LaMelo Ball up there. Uh, James Wiseman, the stud out of Memphis, is in this draft. Uh, Abby Toppin who's the big guy out of Dayton that everybody's excited about. A lot of big names. Minnesota Timberwolves had the number one pick. There's a lot of talks that Minnesota is looking to trade out of this spot. And the reason they could be potentially interested in trading out of this spot is, well, because you could get a haul back if there is a specific team, right? If there's one team that really has their eyes on one of these prospects right at the top of the draft, these quote-unquote can't-miss kind of guys, then obviously you're going to be able to get a haul back. In Minnesota has sort of displayed a history to this point of not being very smart when it comes to drafting players and not really having a lot of success. They're kind of haunted by their own failures in recent memory because Minnesota, what, they drafted... Did they draft Andrew Wiggins? Minnesota has has struggled in these drafts for a long time lately. The only guy they've really hit on, seemingly, has been Carl Anthony Towns so far. That hasn't turned into anything for them. Long story short is Minnesota's thinking about trading out of the number one spot. And this is where it gets interesting. It's because right behind them is the Golden State Warriors, who do not deserve to have the number two pick because their bad season was simply by way of fluke where everybody on that team got hurt in the NBA Finals the year before, spent the whole entire season rehabbing, and they just kind of dumb luck their way into a top three pick. After that is the Charlotte Hornets. Now, the reports today... Um, this is from Kevin O'Connor at The Ringer, is that the Golden State Warriors, both the Golden State Warriors and the Charlotte Hornets, are believed to prefer James Wiseman in this upcoming NBA draft. Now, I have been a big proponent of the ball kid coming to Charlotte. The primary reason is because at number three, I do not believe James Wiseman will still be there. And I think if you bring the LaMelo ball party to Charlotte. He may not end up panning out to be great. He is certainly better than his brother Lonzo. He has already proven that. He's actually a guy who's already been playing professional basketball for a couple of years, albeit in a less than professional Australian league. 
but everything about this kid, he's not the same kid that you remember when Lonzo Ball became a superstar, when LeVar Ball was making all the, the noise on the media circuit a couple of years ago. That Leang- or that LaMelo Ball, excuse me, was a five foot ten prepubescent child. And he had the wacky hair and he had the braces and everything was just like there's no way this kid's gonna turn into be a good basketball player. But even then, he was highly rated and considered to be probably the best player coming out in that class. At that time, he was already considered probably the best prospect that's going to be available in 2020. Fast forward a couple of years, the guy ends up growing like a foot. He's about six foot seven, six foot eight now, and can do pretty much anything on the basketball court except have a really reliable three point shot. But that's something that can get better. Um, his brother has shown that, and I'd say he's already probably a better three point shooter than Lonzo Ball. But really, it's just the circus that could surround him, and the excitement and the hype that surrounds him that would make me want to see Lamelo Ball wind up in Charlotte. Because all eyes would be on Charlotte. Or at least a lot more eyes than usual. Because as of right now, nobody, including a lot of you listening, including myself, honestly, 99% of the time, we don't care about Charlotte Hornets basketball. But I want to. I want to. I legitimately want there to be a reason why I can tune in and be excited and talk Charlotte Hornets basketball. They just have not given us a reason. But if they have an opportunity to get James Wiseman, and they think there is any chance, or they think that they may have to trade up, and jump over Golden State for an opportunity to get this kid. Then they don't need to waste any time. They need to go ahead and pull the trigger on this now. I don't know how much the Charlotte Hornets have to offer. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I have a very good uh, bead on what kind of future draft picks they still have, what they may not have. I can't remember a trade that they have made in the last couple of years of any kind of note or value that would have lost them any future assets. So if I had to take a guess, they still are holding on to pretty much all of their draft picks in the foreseeable future. I can't imagine that they gave much up, if anything, to, like, what? what's the biggest trade? The Boston Celtics-Kemba Walker trade, where they got Terry Rogier back? I can't imagine there's any any indication that Charlotte doesn't have a lot of their future assets. So, that being said, you've got a lot of stuff that you can stockpile and pass off to, let's say, Minnesota at number one, if you really feel like James Wiseman is the guy that can come in and be a difference maker. The very first guys you got to look at is they need to make a decision between Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington. Uh, Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington, both 22 years old. P.J. Washington, right now... Uh, but actually, both guys are under contract through 2021, and the Hornets have a team option on both of those guys. Uh, team option for one year on Miles Bridges in 21-22, and then a uh, two-year team option deal between 2021 and 2023 for P.J. Washington. Back in the basketball season, we talked about this dilemma that the Hornets have where sometimes in basketball, the theory when you're drafting and you're putting your team together is – Well, maybe just take the best available guy. When you're picking in the middle of these rounds, right? Like the Hornets, I want to say with P.J. Washington, drafted him like 11th overall or something. When you're sitting at 11, sometimes you don't need to overthink yourself. and You say, who's the best guy? Let's just pick him up and we'll worry about the fit later. P.J. Washington coming out of Kentucky, where he spent a lot of time injured, seemed to be the best guy. And he was. And since he's coming to the league, he's proven that he's a pretty damn good basketball player. But he's about six foot eight, six foot nine, sort of a tweener between a three and a four. 
Miles Bridges is the exact same guy. Now, Miles Bridges uh, made some noise, got into the Rising Stars Challenge this year, put on an absolute show, was throwing down monster dunks, and really started to come into his own as a basketball player as the season went on and ultimately was canceled for the Charlotte Hornets. The Hornets have a decision to make between P.J. Washington and Miles Bridges. So you have one of those guys as a trade ship. The reason you want to go get James Wiseman is because this guy at Memphis last year, you remember he was suspended because he took money from Penny Hardaway, and that turned into a 10- or 15-game suspension. He came back, played a couple of games, and then said, you know what, I don't need this in my life. I'm James Wiseman. I'm already a stud. The kid's seven foot one. He can shoot the three. In three games for Memphis last year, he averaged 19.7 points per game. All he needed to do was play three games. 19.7 points per game, almost 11 rebounds per game, shot 77% from the field. I want you to think about the last time you've watched a basketball game, an NBA basketball game between teams that were at the top of the league. So just look at the playoffs. Look at the playoffs this year. Who were the teams that were good? They were the teams that have somebody been saying this for years. It's the way basketball is changing. The guys that the teams that are good are the teams that have somebody who's six foot ten that can do it all. Anthony Davis can put the ball on the court. Bam Adebayo can put the ball on the court. Giannis Antetokounmpo can put the ball on the court. All around the NBA, the number one ingredient, Pascal Siakam in Toronto, big reason. Everybody gives Kawhi the love, but big reason why they won two years ago is because Pascal Siakam was the most improved player. You look at a guy like Brandon Ingram down in New Orleans who just won the most improved player of the year in the NBA. Kinston's own Brandon Ingram. Guy's like almost seven, almost ten, seven foot tall. And he can shoot the shots all over the place. And you can, can put the ball in his hand and he can create his own shot at the end of the game. Because the most difficult thing to do in the NBA is have a player who when it's, hey, we need a bucket and we need a bucket right now, can do it himself. And the easiest way to do it yourself is to be a lot taller than the guy in front of you. Think about Kevin Durant. Like Kevin Durant doesn't need to roll off of a screen, have somebody set a pick for him, cut through a lane, get a backdoor pass right at the rim. Kevin Durant can just walk up and shoot the ball in your face because he's so big you just don't have any chance of going up and stopping it. Then it's just up to him to make it. James Wiseman is going to be one of those guys, and James Wiseman is, I think, the best player in this draft. Now, if I'm Golden State, I'm doing the same exact thing. I'm saying, look... Charlotte, if Charlotte gets James Wiseman, they'll just be a more of an interesting team and be worth paying attention to, but still trying to build up to something greater. If you look at it as a core of, like, let's say it ended up being Devontae Graham, Miles Bridges, and James Wiseman, that's a core that you can get excited about and, you know, might hover around a six or seven seed and then maybe try to improve on that as years to come. If Golden State gets James Wiseman, or you think you hated this team for a couple of years, you're going to hate him even more because he fits perfectly into what that team wants to do. Think about the last center that was worth a darn in Golden State. I, I mean, you have to go back before my time. We're going to go all the way back to, like, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't remember old Warriors teams before the Steph Curry and Clay Thompson thing. Like For most of my life, the Warriors were always irrelevant. When they were winning those championships, they did it with guys named Festus Azili and Andrew Bogut and Kavon Looney. That's what their five-man has been for years and years and years. Now you could give them a real threat, another scoring option, uh, a seven-footer who's not just a giant barbarian in the middle of the court. He would be an actually true skilled guy. So this is going to be something to really monitor and pay attention to. Now, if Charlotte doesn't end up getting James Wiseman, 
there's a couple things there. Number one, it might work out better because you're not going to have to trade away any assets. And I think anybody else who could be available to you. There's a couple European guys. I'm not going to tell you I know anything about them. I just know that there are people out there who are high on, I can't remember. It starts with an A, Advan, something or another. If you end up with a guy like Abi Toppin, really fun swing guy. He just makes me feel like I'm drafting Dwayne Bacon all over again, who they drafted a couple years ago out of Florida State. His contract's going to expire. doesn't sound like they're going to re-sign him. If you're looking, Abi Toppin reminds me of Victor Oladipo. James Wiseman, I can't even, I don't even know if there's a good comp for him right now in the league. You remember Thon Maker? I feel like Thon Maker may be the closest thing I've seen to what James Wiseman could potentially be. But Thon Maker, I don't know if it was injuries or if he opted out this year. He was with the Bucks for a while. He kind of disappeared, but there is a real limitless superstar potential there with James Wiseman. And it just simply in the NBA these days, it comes off of frame alone. I'd say Bam. I'd honestly say Bam out of bio is probably the closest thing we have in the NBA right now to what James Wiseman potentially can be. And then and I say potentially, but the guy was the number one recruit coming out uh, of high school in the class of 2019. Who's the number one guy? Everybody was shocked when Penny Hardaway got him, but now we know it's because he paid him and his family, a lot of money, which is fine. I'm cool with that. But he was the number one pick coming out of high school, the number one kid. And then he played three games, and he averaged 19 and 11. I don't know what else you want from him. He's seven foot tall. He averages 19 and 11. Uh, He doesn't even shoot threes. Did not attempt, excuse me, he attempted one three-pointer last year. (laughs) And he missed it. So we don't even really know if the guy can shoot threes. We just know he hasn't even tried to yet. You better believe if he gets into an NBA locker room, the very first thing they're teaching this kid is, hey, you got to learn to step outside and shoot the three. And if you have a seven-footer that can run the court and is averaging 20 points per game, and he's not even shooting threes, add on to his game. The kid could be truly special. So November 18th is going to be the NBA draft, going to be something to keep an eye on there as the Hornets finally are in a position where they can make themselves relevant for... I'm not going to say the first time in my life. Maybe like the second or third time in my life. Second or third time in my life. And one of those times was just simply because they rebranded as the Bobcats. <laughs> Got to go back to like the old Alonzo morning days when they were really actually relevant. And then there was like a hop, skip, and a jump a couple of years ago when they had Al Jefferson. But then they do dumb stuff. Like All I need to do is for the Hornets to not come out of this draft. And it's going to happen. But they're going to come out of this. I just need them to not come out of this draft with a seven-foot white guy. They need to quit drafting Cody Zeller. They need to quit drafting Frank Kaminsky. I tell, it, tell people that all the time. I've got a couple Hornets fans that I know that are they want to be Hornets fans. They're like me. I want desperately to be a Hornets fan. We just haven't had a reason to yet. James Wiseman. If the if the Hornets really really want this guy, they need to be aggressive and they go get him because it could set them up for years and years and years of success. Assuming they can build around him and not ultimately frustrate potentially the greatest athlete that the city has ever seen, like they did to Kemba Walker. Right? That was the problem with Kemba Walker. It's like, yeah, you got this superstar in Kemba. He's really good. He's he's fine. He's not really good. He's but he's also tailing off a little bit right now in Boston. But what was the problem with the Hornets and Kemba Walker? They just never gave him anybody. They said, yeah, here's a guy named Frank the Tank from Wisconsin. What the hell am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> here's Nicholas Batum. He's a superstar, right? No. Kemba Walker just... I mean, I'm so bad for Kemba Walker. I'm so glad he's gone. <laughs> 
All right, when we come back, let's stick with some Charlotte uh, sports talk. We talk a little Panthers right here on the Sam Avila Show. Carolina Panthers going to be in action on Thursday night this week. Panthers versus Falcons battle right there in the NFC South, which uh, if you had asked me at the beginning of the season and when we did our projections, I never in a million years would have thought that the Panthers would be uh, (laughs) leaps and bounds ahead of the Atlanta Falcons when it came to standings in the NFC South right now. I'm trying to pull these standings up real quick to make sure I have these right. But yeah, as we stand right now, your three and four Carolina Panthers in third place and the Falcons trailing them uh, one and six now to start the year for the Atlanta Falcons. Of course, I know we're, look, we're only a game behind the Saints, we being the Carolina Panthers. So to say that they're not really in the mix in the NFC South right, right now um, would just be wrong. Now, that being said, there's no expectation that they're going to catch the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who continue to just round out and get – uh, better and better every single week. But this game over the weekend versus New Orleans, which, yes, they ended up losing, but I think I said it last week, we talked about it last week, where it was, hey, I'm not really looking for the Panthers to go out and beat New Orleans. Obviously, you want the Panthers to go out and win, but it's, it's hey, the whole entire thing this year for the Panthers, I mean, everything is house money. Every win is house money. This is simply an evaluation year. And from what we've seen so far is that Matt Rule is 100% a competent coach. And to be taking this team and the youth, especially on this defense, who now, look, out for the season is Kawan Short. They were missing Justin Burris, one of their starting safeties, over the weekend. They had to bring up a a rather rookie in Kenny Robinson, who was drafted out of Notre Dame, but... Um, excuse me, no, that was Troy Pride who was drafted out of Notre Dame. I can't remember where Kenny Robinson went. Doesn't matter. The point is is that Matt Rule has taken what he's being given, which isn't a whole lot, isn't a roster that on paper you can really get excited about. And he's producing results that are exceeding expectations. How about that? I always continue to bring up the fact that the Vegas win total for the Panthers this year was four and a half. Four and a half. I loved the over, and every Carolina Panthers fan. I'll give a shout-out to Steve Astor here, who said, nope, the Panthers will never, ever be good. He texts me that all the time, and it just cracks me up because I'm like, look, they don't need to be world beaters this year. They just need to show competence, and they need to show improvement, and you need to look out there. And as we talked about these damning comments that Nick Foles had to say, which he walked back a little bit, but look, you said what you said. When you hear somebody criticize Matt Nagy and that he doesn't really know what's going on, you don't hear anything like that from Matt Rule. You hear exactly the opposite. It's, it's hey, Matt Rule's done a really, really good job to come in and produce something with the Panthers team that didn't have any expectations and not in the kind, not, not the good no expectations. It was, no, they had negative expectations. They were expected to be a dumpster fire this year. And they're still not a team that anybody's afraid of, but you can't just come in and take on a Carolina Panthers team and expect them to roll over and die as if you were taking on the New York Jets, right? I think we had Jets vibes. A lot of Panthers fans had Jets vibes this year where you weren't even really curious in watching this team because you already had written it off as a potentially terrible year. 
And now you're interested. You're like, eh, you know what? There's something here with this team. I actually uh, really enjoy watching this team. You've got to love. As much as I mean, the, the Cam Newton thing was just so emotional. Panthers fans had such an emotional response to Cam Newton that they didn't think about what this is actually turning into. You saw Cam the other day, right? Like Cam was benched in the third quarter. He was so bad, Bill Belichick pulled him out of the game. Now, they said they're going to stick with him as the starter. But Cam Newton threw for under 100 yards. Under 100 yards and three interceptions in that game for the New England Patriots over the weekend. Do you know how many times Tom Brady had less than 100 yards and three interceptions and no touchdowns in a game? You want to know how many times that has happened? It has happened two times. One time in 2002, one time in 2006. Cam Newton's in like his fourth or fifth start for the Patriots, and he's already done that. And there's a bunch of there's a litany of reasons and excuses as to why that may be. There's some talks that maybe it's lingering COVID issues since since he had it, and even though he was asymptomatic, perhaps it's you know some lingering effects that are affecting him. I personally just think the guy's old and beat up. Old and beat up. If you watched that game the other day, he couldn't even stand up when getting off of one knee when he was in the huddle. Even that was uh, an act of labor for him. Couldn't even stand upright. So when you get when you look back in hindsight, and you're like, mm, maybe we did make the right move moving on from Cam Newton. It's not because like, hey, bleep you, Cam Newton, we're sick of you. It's hey, no, just from a football perspective, buddy, you might be a little bit spent. And what'd you do? You went and you got the above average Teddy Bridgewater, who just seems consistent as ever, hovering around 250 yards, sometimes a touchdown and a pick, sometimes two touchdowns, no picks. A guy you can 100% win win with. Teddy Bridgewater had 128.3 quarterback ranking on Sunday against the Saints. The Panthers were so close to winning that game. I didn't expect them to be that close, honestly. I mean, the line was seven. What did they end up losing by three? Teddy Bridgewater was remarkable. He was absolutely remarkable. So now we have the news today that Christian McCaffrey could potentially be back and ready for the Panthers. We talked about it uh, briefly last segment, but uh, the report is, is that at the beginning of practice this morning, Christian McCaffrey came out in a red non-contact jersey, which if on a Tuesday, two days before game day, kind of not a good sign for being on track to play. However, by the end of practice, C-Mac was wearing his regular jersey, he was practicing, and he was officially designated to return from IR. There's only a limited limited, excuse me, number of guys that a team every single year can designate to return. You can't just willy-nilly slap guys on and off the IR. The IR is kind of a commitment, but you get a couple get-out-of-jail-free cards, essentially. Obviously, the Panthers are going to use theirs on C-Mac, but it looks like this may be the week. We have to monitor him as the week goes on. But the move basically means the Panthers now have 21 days to activate him and place him back on the roster. 21 days before they can officially, or within that window, they have to officially bring him up. So C-Mac's close after suffering that high ankle sprain um, back in week two. Matt Rule, the quote he said today, he said, I'm hopeful. He looks like he's moving around great. It won't be a minute too early. We'll be smart which is really what you like to hear when you're talking about a guy that they just paid $64 million this offseason. Christian McCaffrey getting hurt was the best thing that could have happened to him and the Panthers. Christian McCaffrey spraining his ankle and missing the last five weeks is the best thing that could have happened to him and the Panthers. 
Because similar to what we were talking about yesterday with Odell Beckham and Baker Mayfield, where it looks now that Baker Mayfield, who did not throw an incomplete pass once Odell Beckham Jr. was off the field yesterday, or on Sunday, rather, didn't throw an incomplete pass because all of a sudden he could play more. The Baker Mayfield and the Browns offense could play more within themselves, more free-flowing, not trying to force the issue with one guy. Christian McCaffrey going down allowed us to finally realize that he doesn't literally have to get 99% of the backfield touches. The no, that's what the number was last year. It was seriously like Christian McCaffrey of 100% total running back touches a season ago. Christian McCaffrey got like 97% of them. He didn't have any breaks. He didn't get any relief. He didn't have any help back there. And he didn't need it. I mean, he went for a thousand, thousand. Like, it's not like he didn't take those opportunities and turn it into something remarkable. But you can't tell me that having an option B isn't a good idea. And now Mike Davis has emerged as option B. And Mike Davis plays a running back style that does not hold up over 16 games, right? The way every single time you hear Mike Davis talk about his running style, it's I run pissed off. I run pissed off. That's his whole thing. He just runs angry. And it's super fun to watch. But if they had to rely on him for the rest of the season, my money would be that that, uh, Mike Davis has to miss some time at some point. But now you have the smash and dash, right? Now you have the thunder and lightning. Now you have two guys that are going to feel reminiscent of D'Angelo Williams and Jonathan Stewart. Some of the best years of Carolina Panthers' backfields. D'Angelo Williams and Jonathan Stewart. Christian McCaffrey... And Mike Davis. Christian McCaffrey, when he comes back, he needs to be slotted in as the number one guy. There's no questions about that. He still needs to be getting 60-65% of the work. But keeping him fresh is only going to be better for the Panthers. And keeping Mike Davis fresh is only going to work out better for the Carolina Panthers. What a remarkable discovery that the injury to Christian McCaffrey has allowed the Panthers to find and realize what they have in Mike Davis. And now going forward, they don't have to say, look, when Christian McCaffrey's on the field, well, that's just our whole offense. No. You're going to be multifaceted. Multifaceted. Come at you from a bunch of different angles. Hell, wouldn't you love to see some lineups where Christian Christian McCaffrey could literally line up in a slot? Mike Davis can line up in the slot. He's just as good of a pass catcher. Well, no, he's not as good of a pass catcher as Christian McCaffrey, but he's more than capable. I mean, he's slotted into C-Mac's role. We're going to see a lot more looks, and Joe Brady is innovative as he is, and he can make it work. You think about that LSU team that Joe Brady was the offensive coordinator for last year. He had an abundance of weapons. Weapons all over the field. Edwards Lair, Justin Jefferson, you can go on and on and on. There were five or six different guys that could catch the ball and score at any given point last year for LSU. Joe Brady made it work. Sometimes having too many weapons feels like it's a bad thing because it's overwhelming. Joe Brady loves it. He's the guy that can make it happen. So now Teddy Bridgewater, who careful Teddy, can be careful because he's going to have so many options that he can pick and choose. And he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. There's a reason he completed over 80% of his passes this weekend against New Orleans. Teddy Bridgewater on the season is completing 73% of his passes. Cam Newton didn't hit over 70 one time in his career with the Panthers. You're watching some quarterback play that you have not seen since, dare I say it, Jake DeLome. (laughs) And you know what? About right on par with Jake DeLome. Jake DeLome, he wasn't anything special, right? 
Panthers fan, you didn't even really like Jake DeLon back in the day. <laughs> For like a season when he took you to a Super Bowl. But outside of that, it was just constant frustration. Teddy Bridgewater has become the perfect quarterback in this system. The perfect quarterback in this system. The only thing that still eats at me is the matchup that we're going to see. Now, on opposite sides of the ball, or opposite uh, times on the field. But 2018, the Carolina Panthers drafted D.J. Moore. Right, D.J. Moore, first-round pick in 2018 for the Carolina Panthers. Just two picks later, the Atlanta Falcons draft Calvin Ridley out of Alabama. And I know at the time I was furious about this because Alabama has been a wide receiver factory. And they always put out the six foot five, six foot six wide receivers. Julio Jones, followed by Amari Cooper, followed by Calvin Ridley, followed by this year, they had two guys go in the first round, Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs. Carolina Panthers do this thing that I, I or did this thing rather. And this was a David Gettleman pick, I believe. I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure this was a David Gettleman hire. I think his first draft with the Giants was 2019. I think 2018, he was still calling the shots for the Panthers. He did this thing where he outsmarted himself, and he said, you know, I want to take the little speedy burner out of Maryland. And DJ Moore was good in college, but DJ Moore in college had one good year. He didn't have a 1,000-yard season. He didn't have a breakout season until his final season at Maryland. Calvin Ridley, from freshman year on, had an incredible season at Alabama. He had two different 1,000-yard receiver uh, seasons when he was in Alabama. And the Panthers missed on adding a guy like him and went for the smaller, speedy guy in D.J. Moore. Now, look, don't get me wrong. D.J. Moore has been good. And this past weekend uh, finally showed a connection with Teddy Bridgewater that we've been waiting to see this year. Three straight games now, and this almost seems impossible to do. D.J. Moore has had three straight games with exactly 93 yards. That's really good. You can't complain about that, especially when you have all the mouths to feed in Carolina, as they do. But he also finally got on, pay- on the right page in the end zone, and he got on the right page in his catch percentage. Went through the numbers last week with you. He was only catching 57% of his targets. Over the weekend against New Orleans, he caught 80% of his targets. Five targets, four receptions, 93 yards, but the most important stat here is the two touchdowns. Because DJ Moore needs to be the game breaker. Robbie Anderson, as unbelievable as he's been, and as shocking and surprising as he's been for the Panthers this year, he's not going to be the guy who elevates his team to the next level. He is going to be the complimentary piece. He needs to be the complimentary piece. That's just his role. That's his lot in life, right? We're all born to do something. One role on this earth. Robbie Anderson's role on this earth is to have funny tweets and be the compliment to DJ Moore. But it should have been Calvin Ridley. Now, DJ Moore last year did have his breakout season. Went over 1,000 yards. In fact, 1,175 yards a season ago for DJ Moore. And he's on pace to have another career year this year. He's already at 567 yards for the season. I'm not saying DJ Moore is bad. I'm just saying these are the two guys that I'm always going to compare to one another because they're in the same division, because they were in the same draft class, and because they were two draft picks apart. Now, the stats are a little bit different for Calvin Ridley. So far this season, he's had four different games over 100 yards, and similar to when he was at Alabama... His stats to this point in his career have been consistent as ever. Rookie year, over 800 yards. 821 yards in 2018 as a rookie. 
Also had 10 touchdowns that season. Second year, last year, 866 yards, another seven touchdowns. This year, he's already got 615 yards. He's on pace to go over 1,250. He's on pace to go over 1,250 yards this year. Also already has six touchdowns. Now, Julio Jones has missed a couple of games this season, but even when Julio's on the field, Calvin Ridley has already kind of shown that he's the better receiver in Atlanta right now. Like, earlier in his career, I'm not going to say that Calvin Ridley has reached the level of, like, peak Julio, dominant Julio that we saw in the first five, six years of his career. But right now, for my money, Calvin Ridley, he's not just the best receiver in Atlanta. He's the best receiver in that division. He's better than Mike Evans. I'd take him over Mike Evans right now. He can play in the slot. He can line up outside. On Thursday night, while it's going to be fun, and look, Calvin Ridley, he's not the huge body frame that Julio Jones is. Julio Jones is something like 6'4", 6'5". Calvin Ridley's 6'2". He's a little smaller. But size is a big thing when it comes to the NFL. You think about the size of your average cornerback. They're what? They're 5'10", 5'11". They're DJ Moore size. I'm not saying I have a problem with DJ Moore being on this team. I'm just saying on Thursday night, you're going to see two different wide receivers. And number 18 in the black jersey for Atlanta, that's going to be the guy that if you just close your eyes and imagine him in Carolina with Curtis Samuel running underneath him, with Robbie Anderson going over the top, and Calvin Ridley doing everything matched up with Christian McCaffrey, just think about what could have been in Carolina. What could have been in Carolina. DJ Moore is great. DJ Moore is going to have a very productive career. But if you're going to give me the option between the two guys, we can now say, I will say this with 100% certainty, three years in, Calvin Ridley was the guy that the Panthers should have taken. They should have taken Calvin Ridley back then. I hope I I don't I'm not going to eat my words because you know in a one game sample size you never know what's going to happen. But week after week, and this is coming from somebody I have Calvin Ridley on my fantasy team, so I watch a lot of Falcons football. I had him last year too, so I've been watching a lot of Falcons football for the last two years. The guy just looks like he's on a different plane. I always I always like to say this to people. When when I talk about sports, there's guys that make it look easy and there's guys that make it look difficult. And the best example I ever have for anybody is college basketball here in the state of North Carolina. If you watch NC State basketball, take NC State basketball on the left, take UNC basketball on the right, and both teams score 80 points in a game. If you watch NC State score 80 points, it's going to have been like pulling teeth. There's not going to have been any flow. You're going to feel like they got lucky. There's going to be frustrating uh, stretches. There's going to be four minutes where they don't score a single point. Anybody who's watched NC State basketball consistently, I you know that it just never looks easy. When you watch Carolina basketball, when you watch Duke basketball, it's a thing of beauty sometimes. It's like, wow, look how easy this team makes it work. Look at this half-court offense. Everything flows. How are they always getting open shots? Team A makes it look difficult. Team B makes it look easy. Sure, you can get the same result, but you know Team B, the team that makes it look easy, is way better. It's the same thing to me with DJ Moore and Calvin Ridley. When you watch Calvin Ridley, it's a thing of beauty, man. It's art at the wide receiver position, and the guy's just open. He's smooth, always open, and consistently puts up 100-yard games. He's already had four this season, okay? He's already had 400-yard games this season. DJ Moore only has one. He only has one. It was came back in Week 2 against Tampa. That number will go up. And you know what? Just because of how bad Atlanta's offense is, I'm guessing they're going to probably put um, that kid from Clemson 
on him on the outside that they drafted this year, and that's going to be a really good matchup between he and DJ Moore. But probably going to be a lot of points scored on Thursday night, and DJ Moore, I'm expecting him to have a big night because he knows, he knows that Panthers fans, a section of them, wish it was Calvin Ridley. And Calvin Ridley, the same notion, knows who was drafted ahead of him. Players remember these kind of things. They know that they are kind of joint. It's a connection that we don't hear about. We do this a lot of times with quarterbacks, and we do it a lot of times in the NBA where it's like, hey, should you have taken player A or should you have taken player B? Tua and Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow are all going to be connected for the entirety of their careers. But this is the wide receiver matchup for Carolina Panthers fans. You got DJ Moore. Do you love him? Are you liking what you're seeing? Or are you going to watch this game on Thursday night and see Calvin Ridley and say, man, what could have been? What really could have been? All right, we come back here on the Sam Avalos Show and close it down next. All right, a couple things to get to before we hop off the air here on the Sam Avalos Show. We got baseball coming up tonight right here on 252 ESPN Radio. Uh, I don't know, a little bit after 8 o'clock will be first pitch. Not sure exactly what time. Blake Snell. Versus the rookie, Tony Gonsolin, who's now got his second start in this series for the Dodgers. Personally, I'm just rooting for Game 7 because, you know, you're going to hear it. If it does go to Game 7, I guarantee you will hear a million people say, the greatest two words in sports, Game 7. But it's true. It's it's one of those cliches that it's like, yeah, it's a cliche, but it's it's pretty daggone true there. Um, But, yeah, I, I want... See, I'm rooting for Kershaw, honestly. I, I, didn't, I thought I was just going to try to be negative and not root for Kershaw just so we can continue this narrative that, oh, you know, he's a total bust in the offseason. Or in the postseason, rather. But there also is a part of me that wants to see the greatest player of my generation, the greatest pitcher of my generation, find out a way or find a way to finally get his first World Series. Unfortunately, this could be the first of many for, for the Dodgers because uh, that staff has just gotten better. I mean, they've been pitching Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin. Those are both rookies. Walker Bueller is only, I believe this is only Walker Bueller's third season. It might be his second season as a full-time starter. But, like, Walker Bueller is better than Clayton Kershaw. He, he definitely is right now, but he might be, when it's all said and done, have had a better career than Clayton Kershaw had, which is an amazing thing to even try to wrap your head around, as good as Clayton Kershaw was. But anyways, not to spend too much time on the baseball. We'll talk about it briefly tomorrow, but you know, just enjoy it. It's been fun. If you haven't gotten into the World Series yet, it, it has been really worth it. And uh, Blake Snell is going to be pitching tonight for the Rays. That guy's really good. They They've got both these teams, the whole entire lineup can hit. Um, so that being said, if you want a little scratch, a little action on this game tonight, I recommend to play on the over because I have played the over in every single one of these games so far, and I think it's hitting all but one of them. Um, both these teams can hit and hit a lot. The starters are good, but once they get into these bullpens, both teams have um, – not that their bullpens aren't good, but they've just they've just struggled. They've just struggled a little bit. Uh, joining me tomorrow, Von Casey is going to be in here, I think. I haven't talked to him. He usually shows up on Wednesdays. I guess I'll text him and reach out to him. So we'll have some fun with Von tomorrow. I've got a list of stuff that I lost. That I've got a couple things I want to get to, but I have no idea 
uh, where it is right now. So you just have to tune in tomorrow and check out what we are doing. But one of the things I'm definitely going to get to with Vaughn is a little bit of talk about the Dallas Cowboys, just because, oh, Vaughn's a Cowboys fan, and I really enjoy picking on him about it. I still cannot believe that when I just tried to rile up Cowboys fans at the beginning of the year and projected them to go 3-13 and this season, um, I never in a million years thought that I would even be close on that. Like, realistically, at the beginning of the year, I mean, if you had to ask me, I'd say, I don't know, they're a 9-10 win team, probably closer to 9. No, they got two. <laughs> <laughs> they got they got two and they look even worse and I hope I hope that the NFL flexes this Sunday night game but do you know what the Sunday night game is this week as of right now? Are you ready to watch Ben DiNucci, the James Madison quarterback? <laughs> it's Ben DiNucci versus Carson Wentz and the Philadelphia Eagles. In what world are all these NFC East games getting televised? And like not even just that nationally. They're going to – I hope that the NFL is smart. But they're not going to change away because they know – look, we like to watch train wrecks as a society, right? We like to – you like to rubberneck. You like when you go past a car crash to turn your head and watch. That's what it's going to be watching the Cowboys on a Sunday night. So while from a football purist standpoint, I'd like to watch one of the better matchups on Sunday night potentially this weekend. But sadly, I would not be shocked at all if they decide to leave the Cowboys-Eagles game there. Uh, Just terrible luck. One of the things we definitely need to talk to Vaughn about tomorrow is the fact that when Andy Dalton just got absolutely murdered on the field on Sunday, and he's entered the concussion protocol. It's, you know, concussion's obviously never something to take lightly, but it sounds like he's going to end up being better off in the long term, I guess, than uh, it originally looked. It originally looked like I was, I didn't know. I was like, man, did he, like, something really, really could be bad. If I was Andy Dalton, I would just walk away from the game. Right, like, like, there's not enough going for Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton has done enough in his career. Like, in what? I guess it's you know maybe that's I lack that that competitor instinct when it comes to something like that. But if I'm Andy Dalton and I've been a starter in the NFL for ten plus years and I've made my millions, what do you want to guess that Andy Dalton has made in his career? I'm gonna look it up real quick. I mean, because what he started? I mean, it was it was at least a decade. At least a decade when he was in Cincinnati. I mean, maybe you don't uh, deserve that he believed all that money, but the fact of the matter is, um, he got it. But while this is pulling up, I mean, did you, you saw that right where he goes down and literally like zero bleeps were given? Not a single Dallas Cowboy fan or player, rather, was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like rallying around him. They did not care at all. They were just like, "Yep, here's Andy." And that's the way this team's. That's the way this whole season's going for us. Andy Dalton, including this season, has made eighty-six and a half million dollars in his career. Just looked it up. Eighty-six and a half million dollars in his career. If I'm Andy Dalton and I've made eighty-six and a half million dollars, I am never ever. Not only am I just. Not, I mean, it's one thing to say I'm not putting on a Dallas or a NFL jersey. I'm not putting on a Dallas Cowboy jersey. Jerry Jones has shown gross negligence in his ability to just not care about his his quarterbacks. I mean, unless your name is Tony Romo and you're an adopted stepson. And Jerry Jones has a portrait, a statue of Tony Romo somewhere in his house. Jerry Jones, who, what, hasn't been to a conference championship game since 1995. 25 years Jerry Jones has been in charge of the Dallas Cowboys. Only 10 playoff appearances and has not been to an NFC championship game since 1995. 
Yet this guy still likes to think that he, you know, knows it all, and he thinks that hiring Mike McCarthy is going to be the answer. Did you hear the exchange? Have you heard this circulating at all? The exchange that Jerry Jones had with the radio host of 105.3 The Fan in Dallas earlier today. I'm going to play it for you here in just a minute. Every single Tuesday, Jerry Jones goes on the local sports talk station in Dallas and does a weekly segment because, of course, he does. Because, right, think about it. How many other owners in sports go and do a weekly radio show to talk about the past weekend's game? Oh, that's right. You couldn't come up with anybody else because nobody else does that because it's obnoxious because Jerry Jones isn't a football coach. Jerry Jones is just a billionaire. And he bought himself this position. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like I wouldn't do the same thing. If I had bukus and bukus of dollars, you better believe that I'm going to have a football team and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act like I'm running that thing. But, you know, I can, I can throw stones from my position because I don't have to worry about ever being a billionaire and buying a football team. But Jerry Jones always takes a lot of heat for this. But what's great is Jerry Jones, he's, been, he's since apologized about this. I don't have any sound of the apology, but I've got the sound of the transgression. Jerry Jones goes on 105.3 The Fan earlier and uh, just <laughs> tells tells the host there uh, to just shut up. You can hear the the frustration creeping into Jerry Jones's voice. Take a listen. Does your team have a leadership void? Um, uh, when... Uh, uh, where in the offensive line, where you, just o- just overall where, when these, but but seriously, seriously, where where do you, where would you have a leadership void? Is it an experience void? Is it a talent void? Is it a leadership void? I'm not trying to be cute here. The answer is yeah. no. The answer is yeah. no. I, I'm asking. A, ju- there's not a well. Just shut up and let me answer. <laughs> no. Oh, I'm backing up. I want to hear it again. This is this is for my own pleasure. The answer is yeah. no. I, I'm there's asking. Not a, ju- there's not a. Well, just shut up and let me answer. Mm. No. Jerry, when you go into the locker room, what I'm asking is, do you see the intangibles? You're not asking me that. I gave you the. I gave you the answer. When I go into the locker room, there's no leadership void in my eyes. Okay. Okay. Now that's your answer. Will you just shut up and let me answer the question? I mean, he's got a point. Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that. Like, I'm not. I haven't told people to shut up before. But like, Jerry, you see, it's it's so Jerry Jones is becoming unhinged because yes, while he always loves the Cowboys to be in the news and to be talked about, uh, this is the first time I can remember where they have been this dreadful. And it's not just because they lost Dak Prescott. They were bad before that. But then the negative publicity that comes with the idea that, well, you refuse to pay Dak Prescott and you're playing hardball with this guy. And now he had not a career ending, but a career affecting kind of injury. And then the Andy Dalton experiment didn't work out. And then you've got Mike McCarthy being called out by Cowboys players and saying that he's completely incompetent. And then you go out and you lose Andy Dalton. You have Ben DiNucci. And now they're going to be featured in Sunday night football. The Dallas Cowboys are going to be the featured team on Sunday. <laughs> you love to see it. Oh, you love to see it. That's Jerry Jones' biggest strength has always been being a PR man, right? Like, that is his whole thing. That has been his strength is PR. It's why the Dallas Cowboys never win jack squat, but they're still the most popular team. That's the, that's the team that when you turn on first take or you turn on Sports Center. Leading the A block on a Monday or Tuesday morning, more often than not, it's the Dallas Cowboys. Why? Because people care, and they like to hear about them. 
Whether you love them or hate them, they're fun to hear about. Unfortunately for Jerry right now, and you can hear that there, that is frustration that has welled up because he's like, damn it, this is not the way it was supposed to be going. Two wins so far. <laughs> two wins so far and not another one in sight. I'm starting to think I might have been a little bit too generous when I said they were only going to win three total games at the beginning of the year. I might have been a little bit generous. I maybe should have dropped that line down to two. I maybe should have dropped that line down to two. Guys, enjoy the baseball this evening. I'm telling you, check it out. I, I This is coming from somebody who really doesn't like get too amped up about the World Series year after year. This one's been really good. So if you haven't watched it tonight, my prediction, I'm going to say the Rays take it. I'm going to say the Rays take it and push this thing to a Game 7 because selfishly that's just what I want to see. But enjoy the evening. Be back here tomorrow, 4 o'clock. Von Casey will join me in studio. Oh, I didn't do fantasy stuff today. Um, Gosh, off the top of my head, two waiver wire pickups that I think you should add tonight. Number one, um, how about Rashard Higgins? Rashard Higgins in Cleveland. Guy had a touchdown and over. He's had a touchdown two weeks in a row, over 100 yards this weekend. He's going to be taken over for Odell Beckham. He's not owned like anywhere, so he should be available in your league. And then I'll throw Carlos, Carlos Hyde out there. Carlos Hyde, Chris Carson. Sounds like he's going to miss some time for Seattle. Chris, uh, Carlos Hyde came in. This past weekend, racked up 74 yards and a touchdown. So if you need some running back help, um, grab him or Chase Edmonds. But Chase Edmonds is probably gone in your league already. Carlos Hyde or Shard Higgins, there's uh, two different positional guys for you. Is there anything else I missed today? Listen to the podcast. There's a podcast. If you got Spotify or Apple iTunes, any of that stuff, the show's getting podcasted every day. So go check it out there. It'll be a big help to me. Other than that, see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. This has been the Sam Avila Show right here on 252 ESPN Radio.